Recovery Elevator, episode 443. And now when I would drink, I'd go out to like a bar or something and I'd connect with people. And what I was really, that's what I was needing was that connection. And I would only do it when I drank and I, and I, my self-esteem was just bombing each time I did it. And so I didn't feel worthy of, of anybody when I wasn't drinking. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill, and I am so excited to be here with you today. Listeners, on today's episode, we have Kelly. She's 46 years old from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and took her last drink on June 18th, 2023. Fantastic job, Kelly. I want to say thank you to all of our Cafe Ari chat hosts. You guys do such an incredible job. This just in. Today is going to be a good day. In fact, today has already been a good day. Be sure to check out Recovery Elevator on Instagram. I'm starting to get more videos. We're getting more content on there. uh, And you're going to get to know the goats. I want to give a shout out to Ron, who hosts our monthly ukulele chat in Cafe RE. Thank you. Listeners, this is exciting. On Saturday, August 26th, we are partnering with the Phoenix for an alcohol-free block party in person in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. This event is from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. We're going to have a table with information about Cafe RE and Recovery Elevator, so please come and say hello. There's a link in the show notes with more information. Thank you, Robin. And before we get further, let's hear from Go Brewing. Thank you to our newest sponsor, Go Brewing. Go Brewing has an amazing lineup of NA beers. Go Brewing has won a gold and silver medal at the prestigious Best of Craft Beer Awards for two of their beers. Their Sunshine State Tropical IPA will definitely be one of my go-tos this summer. You guys know how much I love mango. This beer has hints of mango and peach, and it's super refreshing. Go Brewing brews 100% of their beer in their brewery in Chicagoland. They package everything in-house as well. Every can is pasteurized for maximum freshness, safety, and quality. Everything is crafted from classic ingredients with no added sugar. The end result is a delicious, non-alcoholic beer, naturally lowering carbs and calories. If you are ready to try Go Brewing, save 15% as a listener of the Recovery Elevator podcast by using the code ELEVATOR, plus free shipping on three six-packs or more. Cheers! I've never been much of an N.A. beer guy, but I'll tell you right now, Go Brewing is delicious. They sent me a sampler pack and I loved all of them. Okay, let's get started. While doing Recovery Elevator, I've spoken at schools a handful of times. There's an exercise I've done in smaller group settings where I write the word alcoholic on a whiteboard and ask students to give me the first words that come to mind. I've also done this exercise with adults and the results are the same. In fact, let's try this together. I'm going to say the A word, alcoholic, and let's see what descriptors, images, or thoughts come to mind. I'm guessing we have something like this. Living under a bridge, brown paper bag, homeless, hopeless, unemployed. And we're going to stop right there because as we'll find, this is incorrect. Well, actually, to be fair, some of this is unfortunately accurate. There are alcoholics living under bridges at this very moment, but studies show only 5% of alcoholics fit this description, AKA drinking from a brown paper bag while living under a bridge. The stigma is wrong. In fact, it's way wrong. 
So in reality, a different type of alcoholic is the other 95% of drinkers who don't fit this narrative. What does that look like? Well, we have polled listeners and cafe members a handful of times over the past eight years, and what we look like is much different than the words that we think of when we hear the word alcoholic. And listeners, alcoholic is a placeholder. You can use alcohol use disorder. You can use sober curious. You can use problematic drinker, whatever. But to simplify this, we're using alcoholic. It's just a word. Okay, so in reality, we are high functioning. We are high earners, as in we earn more than the average person, at least in America. We are more educated on average. We have more master's degrees, more doctorates. Uh, We are in more healthy and stable relationships than the average person. So another type of alcoholic. Let's put a number to this. The World Health Organization in 2016 estimates there are roughly 380 million people worldwide with a drinking problem. From my research, this number has increased in the post-COVID era to about 475 million people on the planet. This is roughly 6% of the world's population over the age of 15 are alcoholics or have an alcohol use disorder. My goodness, this takes the saying, you are not alone to a new level, a 475 million new level. Now let's take 475 million and find 5% of that, which is 23 million. Again, studies show that 5% of alcoholics fit the stereotype of what an alcoholic, what we think looks like. So that makes 23 million alcoholics that are homeless and drinking on the streets. The more accurate way to say that is there are 23 million souls who are homeless and drinking on the streets. My goodness. Let's take a moment of silence for the still suffering alcoholic. Welcome back. Now, 475 million people on the planet with an AUD, alcohol use disorder, an alcoholic, minus 23 million, the 5%, that gives us 452 million alcoholics on the planet who don't fit the description or stereotype of an alcoholic. So a different type of alcoholic is the 452 million people who are high functioning, who are high achievers, high earners in relationships, but they find themselves addicted to alcohol or unable to control their drinking. And there is no surprise there as alcohol is the most addictive molecule on the planet. And there's plenty of data to back that up. When you have a society that not only promotes drinking, but glorifies it and then couple that with some big T and little T trauma, then what do you expect? It's really no surprise. Now I know some of you have tuned in today because of the title of this episode to see if there is a different type of alcoholic who can return to drinking normally. Clearly, I have not interviewed 475 million alcoholics, but in the near decade run at this, I've yet to hear long-term success story when people return to the bottle. I feel compelled to throw that out. Okay, so let's put this knowledge, these stats to use. We justify our benchmark of our drinking according to what an alcoholic looks like, which is incorrect. We say, I'm not that bad, right? I have a job, money in the bank, maybe a Tesla. We surround ourselves with other drinkers who don't fit the alcoholic stereotype. Again, that's only 5% to solidify our own positions on the addiction scale. Now, a classic trait of addiction is that we are blind to where we are actually with the addiction process. In reality, the hole you find yourself in is probably deeper than you think. My recommendation is to stop digging. You can put the shovel down at any time. Now, listeners, another classic trait of an addiction is the progression. We have 452 million alcoholics on the globe who are not living under a bridge or drinking out of a brown paper bag yet. 
Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I had a good time putting it together as always. Thank you so much for your support. Thanks for tuning in. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp, before we hear from Kelly. My favorite play is called Dear Evan Hansen. There's a song in it called, Does Anybody Have a Map? The song outlines how nobody knows what they're doing in life and we're all just trying our best, winging it and hoping things go well when we sometimes feel so lost. I love this song. It reminds me that I'm not alone. It reminds me that it's not just me who struggles with decision-making. There's no manual for being a human, no map or key. We have to get to know ourselves and figure out what's best for us. For me, having a therapist has allowed me to raise my awareness and be honest about my shortcomings. I need an outside perspective to see things differently and therapy has provided just that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. Designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com elevator today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot elevator. Kelly, how are you? I'm pretty good. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking, Kelly. I'm excited to get to know you and share your story, your departure from alcohol with listeners. Let's get right into this, Kelly. When was your last drink? Just last Sunday, which was, um, this is Thursday. So sorry, we just went through this. Last Sunday was, I believe, the 18th of um, June. Correct, Kelly. Fantastic job. You've got six days away from alcohol. And listeners, I'm going to share an email from Kelly that I got on June 19th. So the day after her last drink and says, Hey, Paul, I messed up over the weekend and drank feeling pretty crappy about it right now. Do you want me to still do the interview Friday? That's today. We're recording on a Friday, or would you like to schedule it further out? So I have more time in between uh, my last drink and the interview. That was the email I got on, the, I think on Monday. And my response was, hell yes, I want to get you on the microphone around the podcast. You didn't do anything wrong. Hey, we're alcoholics. What do we do? We uh, we drink. <laughs> and uh, I had hundreds and hundreds of day ones myself. So I'm so glad to have you here. And we talked about relatability before we hit record, Kelly. You know, I think closer we get to day zero with an interviewee, it's it's more relatable for the listeners. Number one, there's a word called alcoholism, ism, ism, the incredible short memory. Those of us or those who have longer, longer term away from alcohol, longer time, we forget what it's like. So I'm looking forward to hearing your your story as it's so fresh away from the last drink. So thank you so much for being here. Another part of this is I've had this email before. Hey, I would like to, can we do it later when I have more time from the last drink? Or hey, I drank, I'll ping you in the future. I never hear from those people again. Not to say they're they're in a you know perpetual uh, drunkenness, right? But I'm so glad we're here, right? And how are you feeling? How are you feeling on day six away from alcohol, Kelly? I uh, hopeful again. So that's it's kind of the current spiral I'm in that I'll I'll talk a little bit more about. But right now I'm feeling super hopeful and um and a lot stronger. 
Gotcha. And you mentioned before we hit record that, you know, you're, you're being introspective learning. A relapse is one word. I like field worse research. It's a little softer, but every time I drank and know the same with you, I look back at what happened. How can I do this differently moving forward? So they never were really mistakes or failures. They were opportunities to learn and all right, let's do this. But before we get into your story more, Kelly, give listeners some background about yourself. Where are you from? What do you do for a living? Maybe your age, do you have a family and what do you like to do for fun? Okay, so I am from originally from uh, California, but um, I currently live in Minneapolis. And my career, I made a career change um, a couple years ago and went back to school. And I currently lead um, software development teams at a large bank. And I'm 46. I am not married, but I have uh, a partner. And the things I love to do almost all involve outdoors. So I grew up in Colorado and California. And I think that really like I was into outdoors from when I was young. So running, biking, kayaking, paddleboarding, um, hiking. I love skiing. I love going out and seeing live shows of almost any kind. I love seeing movies, listening to music. I love going to museums and I love, I'm almost always I'm taking up like learning something new. So I, I started juggling a couple of years ago and um, like the latest thing is I got a guitar for my birthday. So I'm learning to play that. Ah, there you go. <laughs> so, Two things. What would be the museum? Like what's your number one museum you, you could go visit? Probably the Smithsonian or the Louvre. Those are two that are on my bucket list that I haven't yeah. seen yet. What, uh, what kind of guitar did you get? I got a shoot. I don't remember. I'm a novice. I don't remember the actual, like it's an off, it's an off brand, but it's a really good brand, but it's sure. not one of the main ones. <laughs> Sorry. Ah, that's Sorry. All right. I'd have to go no, look. <laughs> no, it's no problem. And you mentioned nature getting outside. You rattled off like six or seven amazing activities. What would be your, <laughs> your go-to activity running, hiking, biking, running for sure. That's something that like I, it's my, I started running in eighth grade just for, for fun and realized really quickly it was during a tumultuous time in my life. And it was, it's, you know, a total form of stress relief. So I've been doing it since I was like 14 and I absolutely love it. I go every other day to preserve my knees. Otherwise I'd go every day. But, yeah, yeah. And, and endorphins, right? They mask pain, yep. whether it's emotional or physical, we've heard of that runner's high. I remember totally. my first 30 days, I was, I was outside hiking and running basically nonstop for that, for that same reason. This sucks. This hurts. I'm going to tap into some endorphins. All right, Kelly, let's get into your story regarding alcohol. Take it from the start. If you'd like, let's hear it. Yeah. So, I mean, I was thinking back on this. I'm sure I had, I, I think I had like a sip of my dad's beer when I was small, you know, I'd asked him a little sip, you know, I wasn't excited about, it. I thought it tasted like just the most disgusting thing ever. The true time when I first had uh, alcohol was in high school. I was in ninth grade and, and I'd gone to a party and this boy that I had a huge crush on was there. It was his grandparents' house and everybody was drinking. It was like Coors Light or something just to me that was, I, I didn't want to try it. I didn't want anything to do with it. I was against drinking. I was like really just clean cut everything I, you know, against drinking, against drugs, but I felt like just peer pressure. He offered it to me. I super liked him and I just didn't, everybody else was doing it. And so I ended up drinking just, I don't know, I probably didn't even have half of it. And I don't even think I really necessarily felt it, 
but that was the time where I realized like it was cool to party. Like it was, that's kind of what you did to fit in. So I feel like that was a significant kind of like thing in my brain at that time, even though it didn't do anything for me. And I, I hated it, the taste of it. But then after that, it was probably the next year when my brother went up to college and he was my best friend. And, um, and I started to go up and visit him. It was an hour away and his friends totally were partiers and he was too. And so I just, I, I ended up, I mean, it was a bunch of like hot college guys, you know, some of them liked me, like were totally showing me attention. Everybody was hardcore partying. And I was like, okay, this is, this is what cool people do. And so that's when I really started getting into it. And at the same time I was going through, like my parents were going through this crazy divorce. Things were insane at home. My mom was super abusive, especially with me. And so it just, it felt like a really nice relief, like go up, you know, go up to Cal Poly, get fucked up for the weekend with my brother and his friends. And so from there, it just really took off. And that was, I was always a hardcore blackout drinker. Like when I did it, I wanted to just not feel any pain because I was in so much pain, like in other parts of my life. Would you say that was from the start to blackout, yeah. a hardcore drinker? Absolutely. Okay. Once gotcha. I really started to drink and I was drinking stuff that actually kind of tasted good to me, it was blackout and just doing stupid, stupid stuff. Like, um, I mean, I was, I didn't care about myself. So I totally, I'd get drunk and I'd totally mess around with his friends and just do just dumb things, um, you know, that people do when they're blackout drunk. I, I didn't sure. care about my body. I didn't care about myself. And all I cared about was just having some of that relief. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, you said relief earlier and I wrote that down. I take notes during these interviews and yeah. relief. Sometimes we need that escape and that's okay. Right. Yeah. It okay. worked for the time. Like it, it, sure. was, it was, I think partially for my survival at the time, because I was going through so much abuse at home. And so I realized why I was using it and exactly, you know, how that came about. That's so. a big word too, right there, Kelly, survival, right? Yeah. And we beat ourselves up about a drinking problem. How did this happen? Well, we found a way to survive. In fact, Dr. Gabra Mate is an addiction guru, in my opinion, yeah. of our like day. It. You know, he says, congratulations, you found alcohol. Yes, it might've turned into addiction or problematic, but you're, you're, you survived. You're 46 and you're still here, Kelly. Yeah. Great job. Keep going. Okay. So also during that time I developed an eating disorder and it was really hardcore. And again, it was a way to kind of, um, just get myself out of my pain that I was going through. And, um, so I had, I, I was doing these things simultaneously, but the eating disorder really took over. And so the drinking kind of, um, uh, it subsided slightly, so I ended up, you know, going to college, it just, uh, the eating disorder got worse, drinking got worse. And then uh, after my first year in college, um, over the summer, I was, you know, subletting my friend's apartment, I was there alone. And I, I didn't really think I had a drinking problem, I was focused on my eating problem. And so drinking, everybody was doing it hardcore. And so I didn't really give it much thought or attention. And I focused on my eating disorder and and one way that I, the main way that I ended up conquering that, that was, it was like that summer and I'm like, um, I'm kicking this shit out. I'm going to die if I don't. And so every time I just got this urge, I had bulimia. Um, I had my running shoes by the door and I would just go right to the door, put them on. And I would just go on a run until I felt like, like that energy had dissipated. Wow. And then 
back and I would, I would run multiple times a day. And, and so like closing out to that summer, I pretty much had it under control, something that I thought was going to kill me. I'd had it for years. And so, um, so I, okay. So going back, like I realize now, I, I realize now, like that's kind of one of the things I tell myself, if I could do that, then I can do this now. Like I already overcame something that was so freaking hard. And I, I thought I would never be able to get over. I had these same feelings. And so any, so anyway, so I, I was able to do that. But after that, you know, my drinking ramped up even more because of course the eating disorder was serving a purpose. And, and so I would just do, I would just be, I, I would um, just m- m- go to more and more extremes where I was getting comments from people. Cause I, I drank more than many of the guys that I hung out with. Yeah, let me ask you a question. When you started to receive comments, you're drinking more than the guys. Is this in college still or your, or your early This 20s? was in college. Okay. Yes. And I also yeah. want to say your self-awareness is on point. Maybe some of this is looking back hindsight's 2020, but you're right. You know, if you get the eating disorder under control, that energy has to manifest that manifest itself externally somehow. Right. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Keep going. So I ended up, um, I graduated college, uh, moved up to the Bay area, got my first job. It was an amazing job. And I, I graduated, like I got a 3.8 or something in college and it was a technical degree. I was an engineer out of school and I like on the outside, it looked like I was, I mean, doing great, even in high school with all of this, you know, I graduated with honors. I got scholarships to school. Like I was able to still sustain what I was doing at a high level, even with how much I was just terrorizing my body and my brain. And so I, I moved up to the Bay area, had my job. And at this point I had a serious um, boyfriend and our connection, I realize now, was just getting drunk together. We would go up to San Francisco almost every weekend. He was an engineer too. We both made great money and we would just blow our money up there, get wasted, do stupid shit together. And that's the person who I ended up marrying. And what I didn't think at the time, like I didn't realize, well, of course I was in it, you know, in kind of my own head. I thought we had so much more of a connection than we really did. But that connection was really alcohol. And it was that same type of connection that you go to a bar and you make a best friend and you think you have so much in common. Um, and then you realize the next day you really don't. Well, after we got married and we moved back to Minnesota and we had kids, he started to move away from alcohol. He, he, he was worried about the way I drink. And because each time, each and every time I would get blackout and I would, I would be an asshole to him. And I would, I, I would do, you know, dangerous things for myself. He would have to take care of me. So he saw it way before I did. And he started to pull back from it. And I felt like almost betrayed by that. And then we really, I really started to, both of us, I think really started to see that we don't, we didn't have as much in common as we thought. Yeah. There's a natural distancing that normal drinkers have from alcohol that the older they get, eh, I got a family now, I'll drink less. And looking at that from the outside, it's like, how in the hell do people do that? And it sounds like this is coming to a head. You move back to Minneapolis, you've got a couple of kids, you recognize that alcohol was the magical bond. Uh, yeah, Pick it up from there. Yep. Yep. So we did, we started having kids. We ended up having four girls. And so so I am a mom to four girls, uh, age 10 to 19. Wow. And, um, and while they were young, I held it pretty at bay. It's almost like I had this other focus 
And I just threw myself into being a stay-at-home mom. I just said I was going to be the best stay-at-home mom ever, <laughs> you know, in my mind. And I was out places with them all the time doing things and alcohol wasn't involved. It's when I got home that I would drink, but I would start to make rules for myself like everybody does because I realized it was a problem at that point and I was trying to regulate. What age yeah. would you say when you said you realized you had a problem? Probably around where I truly, truly realized it and was scared. I had the tinges of it in, I think, uh, late college sure. and right out of college. And I always knew that I drank different than most people. I really did. And so, um, but really when I realized it, probably around 30. 30, 30 okay. And I, and I asked that question because I want to provide an example to listeners. Quitting drinking, yes, can be spontaneous. I'm done today, never looking back. However, for most people, it's it's a process. You know, from age 30 to 46, that's 16 years of a process, yeah. right? It doesn't have to be that long for listeners, but you know, if 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 you're getting down on the journey, saying, "Oh, this is this is taking forever," I'm asking, you know, there's 16 years right there, and and we're mm -hmm. on day six right now which is yep. phenomenal. One of my pet peeves of doing recovery elevator is the word only. I've only got day. Nope. I don't care if it's day, you know, one, two, that's incredible. Gotcha. So from 30 to 46, um, yeah. and I want to leave some time for these day six, these six days yeah. away from alcohol. So yeah, yeah closing yeah. the gap. So I started making more, um, it, be, it became, it ramped up really um, around seven years ago. And that was, it really ramped up when my oldest got to be a teenager and the, and I, there's no way I'd ever, I, I would ever you know, blame anybody. This is my own stuff from childhood, but when the tantrums became personal, so personal insults, you know, personal. Mm. And I feel like at that point, I felt like for all this stuff that I threw myself into that I'd failed. And I've always been a perfectionist. I've always succeeded at everything I've done. And I felt like I was failing as a mom and, uh, and it brought me back to, you know, I think some of this childhood crap that would come up where I never felt like, you know, I mean, you know, this abuse, like I never like guarding myself, um, hiding if somebody, you know, just, um, protection, protecting myself. And so I think there were a lot, there were, there was a lot that came up, you know, once my older kids started to become teenagers and, um, and then also just the realization that my husband and I were just totally two different people. We weren't in love anymore. We were roommates, we were friends. But so I just started to go out more um, on my own. I would drink, you know, I would start in the afternoons. Um, it just, it really started to escalate to where at the worst, I was drinking almost every day. Like one day I would pat myself on the back if I could make it through one day without anything. And I'd be missing things um, with the kids. Uh, I'd, I'd get up at, you know, 9.30, 10 every day in the morning because, you know, my my husband would, or my, my ex would have to get up with them because um, I'd be too hungover. So the, the effects of my drinking were really like sinking into the family and really starting to make my life unmanageable. So I got, I, I got two DWIs within that time. And I went to treatment in person treatment in, um, or, you know, uh, like onsite treatment. Um, when was that? That was the treatment was 2017. Okay. My DWI, my first one was 2017. My second one was 2020. Okay. And even that wasn't enough for me to stop. Like I would, I would try different things each time, but I, I feel like I would 
something would happen. I would tell myself never again, but then I didn't have the structure in place to really be able to change those habits in my brain. And that, I, you know, the willpower can only last so long. I feel like if the habits aren't truly changed and I'm not doing something every single day, like to actively combat my thinking that I've had since I've been a child, basically, sure. um, you know, a teenager. And so, um, I guess over the past, I would say two years, it started to change just, um, on my own, um, you know, just uh, ramping things up the tools I have truly evaluating, truly realizing there's no way I can control this. I'm not even going to lie to myself anymore that I can have one Let me or ask two. you a question right there, yeah. Kelly. When you when you said it to yourself, maybe that was out loud or internally with a conscious voice that there's no way that I can control this. How yeah. did that feel? Uh, it, it, I mean, multiple different things. Like it definitely felt liberating, but I also felt like a failure. Like okay. I haven't been able to manage and control this. Yep. I had that same feeling of two things. Oh, this is relief and yep. oh, sh oh shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, and the thing is, I didn't reach out to people. I, and with my job, I work remote and I literally, I'm on teams and I'm staring at people's pictures all day because nobody likes to go on um, face to face. And so I'm sitting alone. I'm, I'm, you know, distancing myself from people more and more and just getting more and more involved in my drinking like that that would make me feel better. And now when I would drink, I'd go out to like a bar or something and I'd connect with people. And what I was really, that's what I was needing was that connection. And I would only do it when I drank and I, and I, my self-esteem was just bombing each time I did it. And so I didn't feel worthy of, of anybody when I wasn't drinking. And so that's something I've realized lately that, you know, that I'm putting myself more out for is I've isolated myself so much and that's driving. That's one of the drivers of my drinking. Um, because that's what I'm doing. When I when I get drunk, I go out and I just want to talk to people and I I feel like I'm connecting with them, although it's just drunk connection. So that's one of the things I'm doing right now is I, I've started to go to in-person meetings um, and really going out on a limb because it's very, very uncomfortable for me. Um, and, you know, I, I met a really amazing woman um, at at a meeting that I go to on Wednesdays and she's like really trying to befriend me. She's been sober for nine years. And even though it feels uncomfortable, I'm saying yes to pretty much anything she's asking to do because I don't trust my brain. My brain's been off for so many years. So I'm just doing everything that feels uncomfortable. <laughs> like, like, yeah. Okay. Well, you said, I don't trust my brain. That's not a bad thing at all. That's, that's in fact flipped. It's opposite. You're recognizing yeah. it's your thoughts, your ideas that have got yourself in this predicament. And yep. let's lean into some other ideas and thoughts, perhaps somebody from an AA group. Yes, we all yep. get there, right? Now, with that realization, I have zero control that we spoke about earlier. Zero yep. control comes two things. It's a relief. Okay, like this is what it is. And number two, it's oh yep. shit. And I'm wondering if you had um, a realization in terms of dedication, there's a quote, I'm going to butcher it, but it's like the level of recovery has to be equal to the level of drinking, like the amount of time you put into it. Did you reach a moment where you're like, oh, okay, I have to quit drinking. I have zero control. This needs to be number one on my priority. Is it there now? Did this happen two years ago? Yeah. I feel like it is, I just recently come to that. And um, again, it went from almost daily drinking to, um, I, I've been adding more and more, uh, you know, kind of tools to help myself. And so now my, now my drinking is not daily. I've gotten to about every two weeks. Um, I'll go into a terrible freaking binge when I do it now. I'm like, it's almost like I'm making up for lost time. It's, it's 
crazy and it's dangerous and 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 I and I'm just completely it's like Jekyll and Hyde and I feel like it's almost like my brain has been hijacked almost when that happens. And so the, over probably the past month and especially the past couple of weeks, I've realized exactly what you said. Like I need to actively be putting so much time into taking care of like this little baby, like this newborn, almost baby, putting so much time into it each day. Um, and if other things have to fall off, okay. Because if they don't, then I'll be spending all my time in jail or something. You know what I mean? If I, if I hit somebody and I kill somebody in my car or I, it's worth it. Like other things can be put on hold. It won't always have to be this intense. I know that from listening to other people talk. So that's, yeah, that's what it is right now. So I have each day, I have my checklist of things. I write them out and then I cross them off and I make sure that those come first now. Yeah. Um, what, what are a couple key things on that, on the checklist? Yeah. So, um, so when I wake up, I do either a five or a 10 minute meditation each morning. And then I have an app, it's called reframe. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of that. Yeah. Um, so it's more, um, so understanding, uh, like how the brain works and it, it, it gives you kind of homework to do, um, each time. Uh, and it's about 10 or 15 minutes, uh, and it's for cutting back on drinking or, or completely eliminating it. And it's awesome. It, it provides that kind of understanding sense, black and white of what it's doing to your body and all that. So, um, so I do that each day. And then, um, uh, I do either an online meeting through, um, it's called, uh, the, uh, the rooms. I don't know if you've heard of that, but mm-hmm. it's, uh, it, uh, yeah. Total list of yeah, all in the rooms, uh-huh. in the rooms. Yeah. Um, or I, or I do an in-person meeting. Um, and then I exercise each day too, cause that's like my major form of stress relief. So yeah. So those are the, those are the things that I do. Yeah. You know, and welcome to the world of paradoxes and complexity, you know, not drinking is not on that list, right? There's not a, that's the goal, right? We want yeah. to log each day alcohol free, but I can tell you listeners right now, if your plan is to not drink your sobriety, it may work for the short time, but for the long term, you know, we can actually describe diction perfectly here. If you check those boxes off exercise connection, treat yourself well, eat well, get outside, see the stars, whatnot, then the desire for alcohol goes away. The connection has been latched onto something else, more authentic, more, more stable, less fleeting, shall we say. Um, and, and I want to zoom out for a second and talk about your progress, Kelly. You said yeah. earlier in the interview that you were drinking almost every day. If you hit yeah. one day alcohol-free, patting yourself on the back, and you probably gave yourself some fuel. See, I'm not an alcoholic. I just went one day without alcohol. So yep. let's just call it every day, every day-ish, to now you're drinking once every two weeks. Kelly, unbelievable. <laughs> you know, And, and we think Thank a lot of people you. think sober, adios, last drink, You know, and here's my date. It's, I'm never looking back, but in reality, it's called stacking, stacking days and building this confidence one day at a time. We've heard that before. So I just want to comment that because uh, I know the listeners were shaking their head going, hell yeah, Kelly, but I want to make sure that you, that you recognize it too. Like you see, are you seeing the progress? Yeah. Looking back, I, I am. I'm really trying to also, I'm trying to think more positively too in that way. I mean, it's almost impossible after you know, weekend of drinking, um, for the first couple of days, because I'm just, I feel so low and just like worthless and, and just ashamed. And like, I did it again, but a couple of days out, like I am now, I, yeah, like I can look back and go, I am making progress. And then each and every time, um, it does happen. I really evaluate, okay, I I'm doing my things here. What can I add or what can I learn from that time? Like this last time 
I learned it's really important <laughs> to not go into fancy restaurants where I'm eating a you know nice dinner and there's a wall of really good wine, which is, you know, my drink of choice that's staring at me in the face. Like I, I just need to avoid places like that for a while that are really triggering. Cause I didn't, I didn't even feel, I didn't feel vulnerable until I got there. And so like, I'm really trying to like focus on places that, that um, I also feel vulnerable in um, and that, you know, and it's, it's not easy. Well, it's not easy right now, of course, because it's summer and um, I live on a lake and there's tons of cafes and stuff around the lake and there's people out on the patios drinking and looking like they're having a great time. I don't know what happens after they go home, but um, they're looking like they're having a great time and I'm feeling like I'm missing out. And so um, so I need to just be really mindful to avoid certain things and, you know, things like that for a while that it, it like perpetuates the lie in my mind. Kelly, is that what, what went down on June 18th, seven days ago, you had six days away from alcohol was there was a wall of wine at a nice restaurant where you sat down, you're looking at a wall yep. of wine. It uh. literally was of really good wine. And then like, uh, and then there was, you know, the waiters going back and forth, carrying, you know, these glasses of wine to people and, um, and all their, you know, their bad, bad listed. And again, I'm, I'm from California. Like that is part of my story or, you know, the vineyards, wineries, that's what I kind of got weaned into that um, on. And so I, that, that's a definitely when I see, when I'm in that environment, it's like, <laughs> I should not be there. That's just like, why should I place myself in that environment? It's, like a, it's like a kid who loves to pet puppies and, you know, telling them to go into a room full of puppies and just don't touch them, you know? Makes That's sense torture. to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And as you mentioned, with with every field research, we we learn something. And I imagine with this, yes, for the for the time being, maybe not forever. Exactly. Maybe let's avoid restaurants with just a in your face alcohol collection. Yeah. Now, would you consider? Do you think you've had a rock bottom? As uh, you know, you've, there's a phrase, "sick and tired of being sick and tired." But yeah, you, you know, like was last Sunday one of those or? Um. I feel like I've had so many of those. I mean, I, I feel so shitty each time now. I think it's just kind of collectively building up. I mean, I've had I've had some really crazy times, but there hasn't been just one thing where I'm like, I'm done. I feel like over the past maybe year, there have been this collect these collective times that have just building been building up in me to where I hate myself when I drink and I hate alcohol. And so, you know, really like like what it does to me. And so I think if that's considered a rock bottom, you know, that's, I guess, like, it, I just, it, in my mind, I, I just feel like I've come to a, a breaking point where I know I cannot do this to myself. It, it, it feels the same as when I got into that summer with the eating disorder. Like, I'm, I can't do this anymore. I, I will do whatever it takes. And gotcha. yeah. Yeah, that's almost the bigger you, that inner child, the the unconscious and the conscious coming together saying, yo, this 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 has got to go. This is yeah. I think this is an exciting time on your alcohol-free journey, Kelly. And I'm so excited to be sharing this with our listeners. Now, Thank I you. have a question. How do you how do you think the abuse in your childhood played a role in your drinking? Mm, I think it was really big. So I, you know, I I am I've, I've always been really sensitive. I've always just um, been really open with my feelings and um, really trusting. And um, I had a mom that had, you know, a lot of issues and her like really extreme abuse in her childhood too. 
and she never got any help from it. And so she ended up passing down that down to us kids. And, um, and especially with me in particular, I think uh, my personality maybe rubbed her the wrong way. And, and so I, I learned from being very young, you know, through physical and emotional, um, like real pretty uh, extreme stuff with her. I learned to just close myself up and just turn off my emotion and, and just like push everything down. And when things really ramped up in high school, I, I, I learned to, to survive and cope with these, these, these strategies that I carried them forward with me, even though I don't need them anymore. My life is not like that anymore. But um, I think that I, I really do understand where that came from. It was, it worked at the time. It, it helped again, it really did help me survive at the time because I didn't, I didn't have anybody else to turn to. I couldn't tell anybody about what my mom was doing to me. So um, I shoved it down and what made it feel better was just completely numbing myself out and, and blacking myself out. I mentioned his name earlier, Kelly, uh, Dr. Gaber Mate. Yeah. He has a book called uh, The Myth of Normal. I'm almost finished with it. And he had a, he had a wonderful line in terms of addiction and, and shame and guilt, right? He talks about in childhood, if there's abuse, a depressive parent, um, anything can happen, right? Say you're five, six years old, you're growing up in this family dynamic. The, the child is, doesn't have the awareness to say, wait a second, I shouldn't be hit. I shouldn't be yelled at like this. My parents are crazy. That's not going to happen. What does happen is they internalize it. They take it on. And, and I went through this myself where if if there's a bad mood or a bad environment in the family, it was your fault, Kelly. It was my fault, Paul, because I could almost control it more. I had more control of the situation of saying, all right, I, it's my fault. I had something to do with it. I'm going to act differently. So my parents act differently, right? Um, my parents are very loving. I, I get it, but no, nobody's perfect. There's no perfect family dynamic. Did that resonate with you? And another part of that question is, you know, where is like your self-worth and where's your, your the, the level of shame right now in your life? So, yeah, I felt that same way. I learned how to, or I, I adapted to try to be able to control. Um, cause I never knew when she was going to blow, like it was, she's got major anger issues and I never knew exactly when that was going to come. So, I would just try to make everything perfect to, mm -hmm. to try to, you know, do my part in keeping her from do from going to that level. And I, I, I started to feel a lot of shame when I was a kid, um, just from uh, even just uh, kind of these things, you know, that that were common that she would tell me that I was manipulative and and, you know, it, just all, these different labels that she would put on me. I brought those to um, my adult, you know, my how I felt about my how I feel about myself. And uh, sorry, what was the other part of your question? Yeah. Um, where are you at with with shame um, and, and how you feel hard. about yourself? Self-acceptance, right? Yeah, I'm not. So not in a great place. So I, that's, I think a, a big part of this and why, and so simultaneously, I'm also, I have a, um, a really great counselor that I go to once a week that I finally found somebody that I connect with. Cause I've tried counseling many, many times and I just never connected with anybody to be able to open up to them. So I found a counselor. She's really helping me through that. She specializes in childhood trauma. And I really strongly feel like that is, it's so tied. Because I, I know, um, what is his name again? Gabor. Dr. Gabor Mate? Yes. I have listened to some of his talks and that's, I strongly feel like that's what's going on with me. So I feel like in order to really become whole, I need to be focusing on how to heal what happened, you know, how I learned to function and how I felt about myself coming out of my childhood. Because that's a really big part of this. I, 
you know, I, it, it feels good still in a certain way to be able to numb out. Cause I, I do like, I feel like I constantly am trying to control things, you know, try to uh, just portray a, a kind of that I'm perfect, you know, which this has really taken me down a lot of notches in that, but um, just to try to be more accepting and loving of myself and take care of myself better. I think it says a lot that I put my body through this abuse. Like I would never put somebody else through this abuse, you know, of, of over drinking and like doing dangerous things. And, but yet I do that to myself and, um, and it's because I don't care about myself, I think too, on a certain level. So I'm really trying to work with that and trying to heal that too. Kelly, what's the plan moving forward? We're on day six, which is yeah. incredible. And earlier you mentioned how you got here uh, in the rooms, the reframe app connection, right? Yep. Um, you know, doubling, doubling down even more on the alcohol-free journey, but how yep. are you going to get day seven? How are we going to finish day six? Like what's the plan moving forward? Yeah, I think, I mean, what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep keep going with do, doing things that make me feel uncomfortable, which really is again, connecting at this point, it's connecting with, with other people. Like that's, that's the thing that makes me feel most uncomfortable. But I think that's the thing that I most need at this point to not feel so ashamed and alone. So I'm going to keep going. Um, I'm going to hit probably more meetings, even in different types of meetings. Um, I'm going to try, uh, there's um, different med meditation practices that my um, counselor is, uh, she's really like skilled on. And so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to try diff some different meditation practices that I haven't kind of more, um, you know, actual person or uh, not person led, but, um, there's a, a Zen center by me that I'm going to try and they've got, um, you know, open meditation. And so I'm going to try that, um, and just kind of keep, keep focused on just every day, checking off those boxes of things that, um, I feel like are working for me. And if I slip up again, do, you know, evaluating again, what, what happened, what do I need to add or what do I need to change? And yeah. And then that's the, yeah, that's the plan. And then just doing things, keep on doing things that feel uncomfortable that my brain, you know, as long as they're safe, that my brain may be screaming not to do, but just do it anyways. It's not going to kill me. Kelly, within your immediate circle, your partner, your family, your daughters, and let's go a little further, your friends, maybe your work colleagues, in terms of burning the ships, does everybody know that Kelly's not drinking? Yep. Everybody okay. knows. Yep. Gotcha. Which is a good thing, right? No colleagues. I'm sorry. Not my colleagues. I'm not very close. I mean, again, it's mostly virtual. Sure. Um, I don't, they do, people do get together for happy hours here and there. And those are things I avoid unless I have to. There's one that's going to be coming up that I need to go to. My boss's boss is there. She wants everybody there so badly. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to really need to plan before that on just really lay out, map out everything in my mind, maybe go show my face for like 45 minutes, have an excuse to get out and then leave. How do you decline a drink? I think what I'll probably do uh, is I'll probably go there already with something in my hand. And just, you know, again, like, no, thank you. And already have a drink that I've brought with me. I'm going to have to think about that. I'm going to have to think about a, like a foolproof way. Cause the, there, there's a couple people in there who, who I could see they're big drinkers and maybe kind of pressuring. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I I'm going to, I'm going to like, I, I feel like for events like that, I've been successful before. If, as long as I have everything planned out in my mind to a T to where I, I, I must 
like there's, it's a least chance of being taken by surprise in a way, you know what I mean? And that's how I feel like I've got the most control over that situation. Yeah. And Kelly, I got another one before the rapid fire round. Mm-hmm. That is, you know, age 30, you recognized, all right, this has got to go. We're 46 and we're on six awesome days. You know, what have you learned about yourself along the way? And, and coupled with that, when you look back, like, would you change anything? Would you say, oh, I wish I didn't have a problem with alcohol or maybe food? Or is that what shaped you into the person you are today? I still don't know what kind of person I am today, I feel like, because I'm I'm learning that right now because it's been so long that I've had something like this in my life. So it, in order to really look back at the person I am, I've got to look back to when I was a little kid. And, and so I, I, yeah, and, and I don't, you know, I know those, those uh, characteristics are still in there. I just need to tap into them. And the only way to do that is without any substances or, you know what I mean? And to gain more confidence in myself. So, uh, yeah. So I, I think, yeah, if I could go back, to be honest, I would. I mean, I, if I, if I, it's been so much pain um, at this point, I'm not far enough away from it to be able to, I think, to be able to um, uh, say, oh, I'm glad I went through all this. I hope I can say that in a couple years, you know, after I've got more time under my belt of being sober. But right now, it's been so much pain. Um, and so that's kind of where I am with it. I accept it. But do I wish it was different? Do I wish I that I didn't have to put, be in that in that much pain for that many years that I didn't have to put through other people that I love through that much pain? I feel like, yes, but then part of that is I have to like, cut that off. And then, you know, so that shame and that just sadness isn't there, I can deal with it later. And then just right now focus only on again, it's like, I look at it as this time, this little delicate baby that I have to give all the things to every day so that it can grow healthier and bigger. And then, um, and at some point I'll be able to, to hopefully look back and think, you know what, I'm, I really love myself and I admire myself for where I am right now. I've taught my girls things through this, you know, uh, through the pain. And I've taught, you know, I, I, I've taught them some things that are really valuable and now I can help other people. And maybe at that point I'll be able to feel like, all right, yeah, this was worth it. I love the analogy of this is like a little baby. It's a little seed that needs nurturing. It needs love. It needs water, sunlight, all, all the fun stuff. Right. Um, absolutely. Well, Kelly, you have done such an awesome job in this interview. I've loved chatting with you. Are you ready for the rapid fire round? (laughs) Yes, I am. All right, let's do it. You can answer each question uh, in 10 to 30 seconds. That would be great. Number one, what is it? What's your best sober moment? Um, let's see, best sober moment. My daughter, um, she her first year of college was this last year. She went to um, Florence for her first semester. She got really sick right away and um, was thinking of dropping out. And I went and I, it's kind of to save her and uh, and had just the most incredible time with her. I didn't drink while I was there. It was, it was amazing. I got to take all of it in sober and I totally helped her and I left feeling successful and proud of myself too that I hadn't drank. And yeah, so that was probably one of my best sober moments. What's the best part of Italy? Uh, I would say when I was walking around downtown Florence, all of a sudden it was a it was a day where they sent out a couple opera singers, uh, professional opera singers, and they had on um, plain street clothes and um, and a jukebox, and they'd set the jukebox down, blast some music, and just totally belt out crazy music like in random streets, 
and the first one, the first one, I was overlooking this cathedral and this amazing man just belting out opera music. It was incredible. So that was, that was, I would say that was one of the, my favorite things about being there. But of course, it's beautiful and the food and everything. But that was just shocking, and I was like, I'm so lucky right now. <laughs> All right, Kelly, what's your favorite alcohol-free drink? I love coffee and water, tea. Yeah, those are my favorites. Kelly, what's the point of life? Um, I think to be like, to find your authentic self and really live authentically to who you are and whatever wisdom you can gain from that, pass it on to other people. What's your favorite 80s band? Um, it would either be probably equally uh, Pink Floyd, because they did stuff in the 80s too, and um, Springsteen. Right, yeah, what are some of your favorite recovery resources? Um, let's see. So in the rooms, um, Cafe Ari is literally number one. Uh, I've been, I've been listening to you for years and you planted, you really helped plant the true seed. Um, and, uh, let's see. So what else in the rooms? Um, sober books, my reframe app, uh, AA. Yeah. Those would be some of my favorites. Meditation, exercise, yeah. <laughs> right. If you had a pet parrot, what would you name it? Probably either Mr. Bojangles, because I've always wanted to name a pet that, but my my daughters haven't allowed me to. <laughs> or um, Alberta Einstein. Ooh, all right. And Kelly, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners? Uh, I think the only thing that I can that I can think of with being you know new like this is just keep trying like even though it feels so shitty you know day one day two just keep like like keep trying and stay strong and then just keep adding like evaluating and you know what what you could be doing differently stepping outside of your comfort zone um you know to retrain your brain and then just keep adding resources and be open to new resources and and being uncomfortable Kelly, before we depart, give listeners your own, you might need to ditch the booze if line. Um, okay. You might need to ditch the booze if, um, if you've woken up, it's been a three day weekend and you've completely lost a day of it. You have no idea what day, what day it is because one of the days is just, you've been blacked out and drinking the entire day. So you think only two days have passed instead of three. Kelly, I think I'm missing about two years of my life. I'm, I'm not joking <laughs> on that. I'm not joking. Unfortunately, right? <laughs> Gonna make yeah. up for it. Kelly, thank you so much for being a guest on the Recovery Elevator podcast. Your 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 stories with alcohol have helped myself and I know thousands of listeners as well. So thank you. Let us know how we can help. Congrats on day six. Thank Keep you. in touch. Day day seven, eight, and nine, or whatever you want is waiting for you on the other side. Awesome. Thank you, Paul, so much for having me here. All right. Thank you, Kelly. In the last eight years of podcasting, I've had a lot of questions about how do you podcast, what equipment you need, what's the setup, how do you do YouTube, lighting, cables, microphones. So go check out the Recovery Elevator office tour on YouTube. We're going to get a link in the, in the description for that. And I'm going to walk you through my office setup. And hopefully I can answer some of the technical questions about podcasting, microphone, interfaces, cables, software programs things like that. I love my office. I do. I covered this, I don't know, 20 episodes ago around there. I remember I was going to turn off the lights in my living room, which is where my office is. And I stared down at the office and the feeling of, 
of gratitude showed up and, and accomplishment. So I looked down on my office setup and I knew the younger Paul, right? The Paul in high school or college who was preparing for the life ahead of him. You know, without knowing how I got there, just a snapshot of the office, I would have been so proud of myself. There's an 88 key piano right below me that I can pull out on a tray. There's a synthesizer, there's a microphone, there's a Buddha statue, there's live cactuses, um, there's a flute, there's ukuleles on the wall. Anything is possible in sobriety, in recovery, in this world without alcohol. Whatever your dream is, whatever your why behind ditching the booze is, go for it. You've done the hard work, which is ditching the booze. The other part of it is stepping into your new life. Recovery Elevator, go big because eventually we all go home. I love you guys.